flowers and cats and whales. We're drawn to the organic world perhaps because we see in it our own fleeting reflection. And yet, there is something magical about the enduring rock, a silent witness of not just evolution but the origin of the universe itself. I am your host, Åsa Boschén, and this is High Grade. This is High Grade. You think you're rich, uh, but in reality you're not rich. The resource curse theory takes a short-run phenomenon and projects it to a long-run outcome. The most important drivers of investment are the quality of the resource, the infrastructure that's available, and the governance environment. Industrial development accelerates the speed of social change. Creative destruction, people losing, people winning. What we need to fix is politics, not the resources. Welcome to this Natural Resources Podcast. The philosopher Alan Watts refers to the wonder of a pebble in your hand. Today we explore the world of minerals, all the way from creation to the marketplace. I am here with Kevin Fox, a geologist and senior executive in the mining industry. His career has taken him to some of the most remote corners of the world, but he retains this childlike wonder for a pebble, alongside his strong Irish accent. Kevin, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. You were born in Cork. I was in Ireland quite a long time ago now. Tell me about those years. How was growing up in Ireland back then? So I suppose, you know, the era we're talking about is the 1960s and Mm. 1970s, a long time ago now. What I'd say about Ireland at that stage, I guess it was quite an inward looking place, fairly insular. And, Mm. you know, we only joined the EU in 1973. So I suppose part of the feeling I have about back then was I was pretty keen to get out of Ireland at some stage to sort of broaden my horizons, etc. And that was certainly an influence in my career choices or options as I looked at them. But you went on to study in Dublin, which is not too far from Cork. (laughs) That's true. But I was, I suppose, looking at that as my passport for moving abroad. People would associate Dublin with writers before they think mining. Why rocks then? Where does this attraction to the inorganic world come from? Yeah, so interesting question and an interesting story. I suppose for me, it started in particular with a love of geography at school. And Mm. it broadened from that into an interest in in science more generally and biology in particular, I guess. I got very interested in evolution, Charles Darwin, understanding the earth, etc. And I was one of those nerdy kids who had a fossil collection, for example. I started reading up about the subject when I was probably 14 or 15 and thought to myself, you know, the combination of a very interesting science subject plus the opportunity to travel, look at some very interesting, you know, places to live, development opportunities, all of that added up to an interest in going into the science of geology and what it might open up for me in terms of opportunities and learning. So it was more um, a draw to the geology and the science rather than the business side of mining? 
Yeah, I think that probably came later when I started to understand the economic relevance of geology and thinking about resources, probably in the first instance in the context of oil and gas, actually, rather than mining. And, Mm -hmm. you know, in my early years in college, I was, I suppose, thinking about the opportunities that might be there, both in oil and gas and mining. And at the end of the day, I suppose I preferred to go the mining route. But I certainly thought hard about oil and gas as well. And, you know, if you think back to the context of the time with oil price hikes and all the rest of it, it was, Mm. I suppose, the start of a broad awareness of the relevance of the science of geology and resource understanding and that admix of you know that and economics is really what got me quite interested in pursuing it as a career as well. Kevin let's consider the origin of it all. Where do minerals and metals come from? So if if you, I suppose, take a step back and say, you know, how, how long has the earth been around? Well, mm. the answer obviously is an awful long time. I mean, <laughs> I think, subject to correction, of course, the oldest rocks known now are probably about four and a half billion years. And, you know, that's really a testament to the origins of the earth probably go back even further before that. In fact, they certainly do to the Big Bang and, you know, how it all came into being, etc. So, I mean, since then, obviously, the earth has evolved an awful long way, but the basic makeup of it, the rocks, etc., and the composition of those rocks, minerals, has been relatively consistent over the last couple of billion years. There has been evolution of the atmosphere, which has changed um, how rocks form and some of the the rock formations that formed four billion years ago, some of the the very old iron formations, for example, probably wouldn't form in the same way now. But a lot of the, you know, the products of the origin of the earth are still with us in Mm. terms of, you know, some of the most common minerals are, for example, oxygen, um, aluminium, the uh, iron minerals, etc. So the elements that make up the minerals have changed to some degree, but still have a long, long history um, in terms of their presence in the Earth's crust. It's fascinating. Is it true that the centre of the world is just a big ball of melting iron ore? Well, that's what they say. There's a lot of nickel in there as well, apparently, and it's very hot. Of course, nobody knows that for sure because you can't go there. But the measurements that have been made uh, deep into the earth suggest that, yes, the core is a molten mixture of, of several minerals, including iron, magnesium and perhaps nickel as well. Fossil fuels, on the other hand, they're organic material. So what is the history of oil and gas? So oil and gas generally, um, the oil and gas that we know about has a, has a much younger um, age in terms of, you know, how long has it been around? And it's a product of the, let's say, decomposition of mostly plants, microorganisms, etc., to produce mm. oily substances. And Oil and gas, as we know them for fuels, is one part of a spectrum of a variety of um, materials that are essentially based on hydrocarbons, i.e. mixtures of carbon and hydrogen. You mentioned some of the most prevalent substances in the world, but what are then some of the rarest? 
Yeah, so that's when you get into, I suppose, the whole discussion then about, you know, what metals are of particular interest to us. Uh, for example, gold uh, is quite a rare metal in terms of its, its what's called crustal abundance. In other words, how much of it is around in the earth. Um, minerals such as iron are a lot more common, for example, and would have a much higher crustal abundance. The very rare metals such as platinum, palladium, for example, are quite scarce. And then if you talk about substances like diamonds, for example, very uncommon, hard to find, and as a result, quite valued for their rarity um, value. So is there a correlation between abundance and price? I'd say broadly that probably is true. I mean, it's all about, you know, how relevant or how useful some of those minerals are as well. Mm. And of course, that drives demand and, you know, supply is is one side of the equation and, and demand is the other. And the combination of the two is really what determines price value in use, as we often call it, is a reflection of just how much do we need to use copper or iron or gold or silver or some of the other metals that we we employ in you know all sorts of aspects of our lives etc there are minerals and metals literally everywhere but why is it then so difficult to find viable deposits yes a very good question as and uh, i wish i had all the answers to to <laughs> those but i i think you know one of the things that perhaps is useful to say up front is that economic concentrations of minerals are essentially anomalies. They're unusual because they represent exactly what they're described as anomalous concentrations of copper, for example. So although there is lots of copper in the earth's crust, large concentrations, high grades of copper, for example, in excess of 1% copper mm. are very unusual occurrences and we often do call them anomalies and finding those is difficult just because there are so few of them and in many cases now there are no longer indications on surface of the occurrence of those uh, ore bodies of copper, gold, whatever else mineral you think about. Which means and you have so to drill. You have to find where to drill in the first instance mm. and then subsequently drill to actually locate them and evaluate them. So they're hiding, I suppose, mm. is the simple way of describing it in some respects. And how do you determine when a deposit is viable? So going back to the piece about um, the economics, I mean, a lot of it obviously is driven by the product of supply and demand, which equates to the price often of the minerals. So you've got to find a concentration of that mineral, whatever it is, that is sufficiently high grade or appropriate grade and scale in terms of the tons of those minerals that are available to make the the mining, the extraction and the subsequent processing of those minerals economically viable. It is in large part driven by the price, but also the characteristics of the mineral deposit you find. And that is a complicated process that involves many disciplines, including my own of geology, but also mining and metallurgy, extraction of the metal processing, etc., to produce 
potentially a viable commodity that's saleable to customers for use in end uses in, in consumer products, etc. There is an important distinction between mineral resources and reserves. And the distinguishing factor really is economic viability. So mm. resources are concentrations of metals or minerals that might or might not be viable depending on the economic um, factors. We often call them modifying factors, which determine whether it is economically viable, i.e. you will make money out of it by extracting and processing those resources. Mm. Sometimes, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons, perhaps the cost of extraction, it just is not viable to extract a resource at the price prevailing at a particular time. It may change because of supply and demand. And so, you know, a grade of copper of, let's say, 1% might be valuable in some contexts. Um, in others, um, it might be a half percent. And mm. you know, if you go back 100 years or more, perhaps, it was probably only um, grades of copper of around 1% that would have been viable. Now, you know, we mine grades of 0.25, copper, and that's in large part due to larger scale extraction, but also more efficient processing of the ores that allows us to access and produce viable resources from lower grade concentrations of minerals. Does this mean that as a geologist, when you define the deposit, are you then already thinking of the practicalities, for example, how you're going to get the material to a harbour or you're looking at tax law or you're looking at government relations? Yes, I mean, and, and oftentimes you think about it in advance because, you know, the reality mm. is there are some parts of the world where there may well be um, potentially attractive concentrations of minerals, but because of distance from infrastructure or particular difficulties in accessing the area, it's just very hard to see how some of those resources could ever be viable in you know, the prevailing economic conditions. So that's one of the factors we use before we start thinking about where we would go to look for minerals, mm. the whole potential for turning it into a, an economic prospect. And you know, when we do locate concentrations of metals, minerals that we think are viable, it does start that whole train of evaluation of infrastructure requirements, capital cost for developing a mine, the likely operating cost, the interaction with local communities, which is very, very important these mm. days. And, you know, what we often called obtaining a, a social license to operate. In other words, having the permissions required to produce uh, minerals in, in a variety of contexts is absolutely part and parcel of the sort of evaluation work that we carry out now when we go to look for minerals and produce minerals. I'm very interested in the practical aspects of this. How do you find minerals? Where do you start? So there's a, there's a famous um, saying in our industry that the best place to go look for more minerals is close to somewhere you know there are some minerals. <laughs> and that's, I suppose, a, a cheeky way of saying that there are particular areas in the Earth's surface that have 
a tendency to concentrate these minerals. Um, for example, in copper, it's well known that there is abundant concentrations in Chile, for example, in, in mm. Peru. So there are particular environments around the world, geological environments, because of their history, they have a tendency to produce mineral deposits. So knowing the location of those is a guide in the first instance. When you go to actually find a new deposit, it's then a process you go through of finding those indications that there may be mineralization there. We use techniques in sciences such as geochemistry and geophysics, which look for either the physical properties of the mineral deposit that might Mm -hmm. be detectable using Um, particular techniques are the geochemical signatures. In other words, if we take a sample from a stream, would there be a suggestion that there's a higher concentration of copper in that stream that might be pointing you toward a potential origin, i.e. a copper deposit further up the stream, for example. There are lots of techniques we use these days using satellites to analyse the Earth's surface to see Mm. if there are unusual indications of a mineral deposit. And this term I've used before, which is anomalies, we are Mm. always on the lookout for anomalies, i.e. something different that might suggest the presence of mineralization. How much of a gamble is this? What are the statistical chances of finding something and, and then eventually turn it into a profitable mine, hopefully? Yeah, statistically, it's a situation where the odds are mostly against you, unfortunately. (laughs) So, you know, there's a reason why some of these minerals uh, attract very high prices. And, you know, as I said, it it goes back to the balance between supply and demand. And and supply is often, um, you know, a recognition of the fact that some of these minerals are just scarce and they're hard to find. And I suppose, you know, if I was to point it, some in particular, the platinum group metals, they're quite rare. They only occur in specific locations in the Earth's surface, and they're very difficult to find economic concentrations. Iron, for example, um, as opposed to that, is quite common, but finding high-quality deposits of iron ore is quite difficult as well. So I suppose the short answer is it depends on the minerals, but... Mm. Mineral exploration by its nature is a high-risk enterprise. It requires a considerable amount of expenditure and commitment, dedication, and professional people who know how to go about doing it. So, you know, there is a, I suppose, a, a fairly small group of people in the world that dedicate a lot of time, effort, and money to this process. And yes, we are successful because, you know, there is a thriving minerals industry that supplies the needs of manufacturing, etc. But, you know, if I look back in the 35 years I've been doing this, I think it's fair to say that it's becoming harder to find high quality deposits of copper, for example. Indiana Jones captures people's imagination. (laughs) (laughs) 
a yes. good discovery. How much is Indiana Jones' experience in the field, kicking rocks, engaging with indigenous communities, and how much is it about systems and technology? I, I suppose, again, the short answer is it's both, yeah. but, you know, basic prospecting techniques and going out there with a hammer and looking at the rocks on the ground and understanding what's going on is fundamentally important to successful mineral exploration. These days, I, re I guess we would regard it as a very important skill set. We have to have that, but then we supplement that with these other techniques. And, you know, as you rightly say, these days and for, you know, many decades now, it's increasingly clear that engagement with the communities that live in the area that we work with is fundamentally important, successful, not only exploration, but in particular, subsequent development of any discoveries that you make. So the, the range of skills that mm. geologists require now, I think, has broadened very considerably over the last, as I said, I've been in it for 35 years. And, you know, we've seen increasing application of, for example, technology such as computer manipulation and storage of data, for example, has become very important. The application of geographic information systems for managing varieties of data sets has become very important. Mm. But those, you know, those basic geological mapping skills, recognition of minerals and the types of alteration that often occur with mineral occurrences is very important. And those, you know, skills in communication and management of teams, etc., in remote locations, because you are often in remote locations, very important skill sets as well. And do the big mining houses have competitive advantage in exploration? Why not outsource it to specialist firms, the so-called juniors? Yeah, so I mean, that's a very interesting question. And, you know, we have often thought about the options that might be there for mineral exploration and what, you know, constitutes the key factors in, in successful mineral exploration. I mean, no doubt having access to funding is a very important part of yeah. successful exploration. But more than that, it's commitment to funding over often quite long periods of time to make sure that you've got the opportunity to create the discoveries. And that is often a time consuming process. How long? Often it could be uh, 10, 15 or 20 mm. years. Um, you know, anybody that thinks that you can go out from day one and have a successful discovery within a short period of time, that's incredibly difficult to do these days. I was going to say, though, that I think there is a very important role for the entrepreneurial, often referred to as junior mm. companies, because, you know, they often have that creativity that is sometimes difficult to generate in larger organizations, not impossible by any means. But certainly, you know, we regard the junior companies as incredibly valuable sources of ideas and opportunity generating options for us that we often bring to bear in terms of the combination of entrepreneurial skills from the junior sector plus perhaps financial power um, or availability of, of financial capability uh, 
to make a successful combination of mm. the two. And, you know, we often engage in what we refer to as joint ventures yeah. that look to pull together those very important ideas and capability with perhaps financial and additional technical capability that often uh, reside in particular in the bigger mining houses. Kevin, I bet you would be a great dinner guest. You must have plenty of anecdotes from your years in the field. <laughs> I probably could be very boring for long periods of time talking about the places I've worked, etc. <laughs> what have been some of the most intriguing places and people you've encountered during your career? Gosh, that's, that's an interesting question. As I, I mean... I guess, you know, the first thing I'd say is I've been incredibly fortunate in having the opportunities to work in mostly developing countries, actually. I mean, I spent 18 years in Africa. I spent 10 years in South America. And, you know, in all of those places, I guess the, the really interesting uh, opportunities it created, not just for doing the work that we do, but, you know, seeing the social and political context of all of those countries, how they've, you know, changed over time and, you know, the political events that were there when I was there and uh, how that has changed and changed the countries has been a fascinating aspect of what I've done. The opportunity to interact with so many different cultures and peoples on the ground, etc., has been a tremendous uh, experience and a privilege, really. And I, I've thoroughly enjoyed that. And, you know, going back to my original comment about wanting to change perspective from fairly insular <laughs> Ireland in the 1970s and 80s. Well, I've certainly been fortunate in being exposed to many different opportunities in that regard all over the world. I'd be really hard pushed to say, you know, where did I enjoy the most? But some of the countries that, you know, I've found fascinating to work in include Brazil, for example, and the DRC. Um, probably one of the most exotic places I've ever worked in is Kamchatka in eastern Russia. Just the combination of the scenery and the climate and all of the other aspects that go with that. Um, you know, I had some success in exploration in parts of Africa, which, you know, has been a, a fantastic learning experience and the opportunities it's created for um, people to develop careers in the mining industry. Mm. That's been one of the huge, I suppose, sources of satisfaction and, you know, just reminds me and I guess reminds all of us that when we're successful, it's a fantastic way of generating opportunities for value creation and opportunities for job creation and wealth creation for communities that sometimes, you know, in remote areas have very little in the way of alternatives for that sort of opportunity generation. Kevin, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining Highgrade. You're welcome and uh, thank you very much for the opportunity. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed this journey from the creation of the universe to today's mining industry. This podcast was done with support from the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development through BGR and the Inter-American Development Bank. Make sure to subscribe to our channel on whichever podcast platform you are using. We will be back very soon. Until then, so long. This is High Grade.